Okay. Okay. Can I have your attention? We're going to get started a little earlier today, a few minutes early, so I can say a few words. As I mentioned before, we should eat. I can say a few words, and then you get your full hour with our uh, CSP speaker. So you're in the right room if you're looking for um, CSP's first annual Bernard Gilmer uh, birthday bash. So is this the right room? You're in the right room. Okay. Are you just eating the food and leaving, or you're in the right room, right? Okay. Um, I wanted to, um, of course, thank Phyllis Gilmore and the Gilmore family for underwriting the program in memory of uh, Barney. So everyone, let's join in thanking the whole Gilmore family and Phyllis. In a moment, we'll say a few words about uh, Barney, um, a longtime uh, supporter and patron member of CSP. But a few preliminaries. Um, some of you I know are new to CSP and have no idea, like this gentleman right here, he has no idea, his name is Mark Berman, he has no idea what CSP stands for, right Mark? See, no idea. So CSP stands for Community Scholar Program, and uh, this is actually our 18th year of doing programs in Orange County, so if it's your first program, you've missed 17 years, plus a few programs, we still welcome you. We do record our events, like today, and we put them up on uh, our iTunes podcast, OCCSP, and we have over 200 programs up there if you want to catch up to the rest of us. We are a donor-funded program. Unlike NPR, we get no money from the government, <laughs> unless you consider the Federation and the Foundation the government, which I guess in Orange County, the Jewish community, they are the quasi-government. Um, Right. So we do depend on your donations, and if you are a donor and on different levels or a member of CSP, I want to thank you. And if you're not, I hope you will consider joining CSP today or this week and helping us to continue to bring the most interesting speakers in the Jewish world to Orange County. We also have close to 100 people in our legacy circle, and um, I hope you will consider, if you're not in our legacy circle, consider joining us. There are benefits of joining the legacy circle. Um, certain programs you get invited to, that I'll, for example, that I'll mention. And, um, of course, as I've mentioned many times before, scientific studies have shown people who join legacy circles live longer. <laughs> so, uh, that's a good reason. I do want to thank um, the Jewish Community Foundation and the um, Jewish Federation for their continued support of CSP. Without you, we couldn't have our programs. Uh, without them, we couldn't have as many great programs. Let's see. Um, upcoming events I wanted to highlight. In December, we have one program. Uh, a world-class philo Jewish philosopher named Paul Mendes Flo will be with us. His topic is, um, uh, Are We Still Jewish? Modern Jewish Thought, Challenges, and Prospects. Uh, Professor Paul Mendes Flo really is one of the great contemporary philosophers in the world. I hope you will join us for a brown bag lunch, December 11, 2018, up here possibly in this room, but one of these rooms up here. And then, of course, what starts in January? Anybody want to volunteer? One Month Scholar. Thank you. Mark Dolinger. Mark Dolinger comes as a One Month Scholar. So I had, I printed out, we haven't gone to print yet, but we're going to print probably this week, our uh, brochure. So this, it, it'll look way prettier than this. This is just a printout. But um, you will see that Mark is doing close to 30 programs in 30 days. We have an opening program, a closing program uh, that are CSP programs. We have two class series that meet up here, a Wednesday lunch series, Thursday evening series. 
So what you should know is that this year, the class series are only for CSP members and CSP Legacy Circle. So if you're part of our uh, membership base, you can sign up now. Um, while we still have room available, we have uh, close to 50 people already signed up for each class series. So I want to make sure you know that. So we're pretty much at capacity. But if you're a member and would like to, to uh, participate, please do sign up. If you don't have the link, I sent around the link to members, then just email me and I'll send you the link. If you want to become a member, because you either want to support CSP or because you want to uh, join those programs, you can also see me after the program or email me. But uh, all our legacy uh, members and our CSP members are thanked in the back of the brochure, so please do take a look at it and make sure that I've spelled your name right, that I've included you correctly, and that I haven't married you off to someone who's not your spouse like I did a few years ago. Okay? But uh, the, the overall uh, theme for our 18th Annual One Month Scholar is a journey through American Jewish history. It should be quite interesting, and many of the topics are very relevant. For example, Jews and politics, Jews and whiteness, American Zionism, affirmative action quotas and the myth of meritocracy, BDS, um, black power and Jewish politics, and California Jews. Those are some, it's a sample of some of the programs. And as I've mentioned in numerous other programs, we are going to, uh, we finished, we just came back from our big trip to New York, um, and we had 50 people running around New York. I didn't know that there's a gentleman who is crazier than we are, um, and I sent an email to some of you, I may send out to everybody. I think his name is Mark Green, or his last name is Green. But he, um, he decided he would walk every street in New York City. When I say every street in New York City, I mean all the boroughs, not just Manhattan and that he would try to discover something interesting on each street in New York. He thought it would take him two years. It took him six years, and a documentary crew started to follow him, and now the documentary just came out. So maybe we'll have a CSP event and watch the documentary and talk to him. Uh, but anyway, so that program is over, but we're heading to uh, Jewish Root Ships to Poland, Lithuania, co-sponsored by uh, Congregation B'nai Israel and the Jewish Community Foundation, July 7th through 18th. We have 31 people signed up. We have space for about 33 to 35. So we're about 90% sold out. If you want to join us, please see me and sign up before Beverly Jacobs and Susan Glass do. Where are they? <laughs> or else you'll be on the wait list. Okay, as I mentioned, we are recording today, and it is a lecture, so please take a moment and turn off your cell phones. Inevitably, invariably, someone's cell phone does go off. We're not going to be mad at you. Norman may come and smash your phone and with his feet. The rest of us will be fine, but I urge you to turn it off now. And... Um, I wanted to say a few words. So I think the first thing is I wanted to, I sent out this long biography, and uh, Phyllis maybe cut it back about Barney and his incredible contribution to modern music and um, his star, uh, his bright star as a teacher at UCI right across here. But Phyllis, can you say a few words about Barney to share with the group as we are celebrating his birthday today? Thank you. And you want to come up here and do it real quick? Or do you want to yell? Not, not okay. Could everybody hear? Yeah. Thank you all for coming to celebrate Barney's birthday month, which is November. Uh, and thank you, Ari, 
for everything you did to Ranges. He's the one that makes everything click here. And thank you, Professor Kotkin, for what I'm sure will be a, a great lecture because we heard him a few months ago. He gave such a fascinating lecture. And he's a French horn player. And all French horn players are good lecturers. <laughs> so, uh, I want to thank my family for coming, especially my cousin Eileen from San Diego, my daughter-in-law and son, uh, Su Jin and Benjamin uh, from Redondo Beach, they came, and uh, my friend Janice Tropp, who lives here, but um, still made an effort to come. I know you all did too. Barney would be very happy uh, to see you all here. We love the CSP. Uh, we have many good memories of lectures and retreats, and I can't think of a better way to honor his memory. Uh, in June of 2019, uh, Barney's masterwork will be premiered uh, post, uh, posthumously uh, at Soka University, and you'll all be receiving more information about that, and I hope to see you there um, that, uh, to uh, support our efforts to bring this piece to life and uh, to have it heard uh, as a community effort. So I thank you all for coming. I'm looking forward to the lecture. Thank you. Okay, so uh, just an introduction, then we'll get started. We have with us today Professor Daniel Stein Koken. He's a junior professor of Jewish literature and culture at the University of uh, Greifswald, Greifswald in Germany. Correct. He's also a visiting professor at UCLA in the International Institute uh, with a primary focus on Israel studies. In 2015 through 16, he served as the Viterbi Professor of Mediterranean Jewish Studies at UCLA as well. During the academic year, Professor Stein Koken teaches three undergraduate courses in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Cultures, Symbolic Places and Spaces in Israel and Palestinian Territories, Settlement in Israeli History, and Introduction to Jewish Studies. He also teaches uh, about Europe and Israel, the history of a vexed relationship in the, in the International and, and Area Studies Program of the International Institute. Professor Stein Koken's research ranges across Renaissance, Jewish, and Israeli studies and has been supported by uh, Villa One Tati, the Harvard University Center for Italia Renaissance Studies in Florence, Italy, and the Kata Amberg Kalag of the Ruhr. This is very challenging, especially after I just ate some falafel. And the Ruhr University, uh, Bochum in Germany. Did I do okay? Did I butcher everything? A native Angelino, oh, Professor Stein Koken received his BA in Classics from the University of Chicago, where I think it's quite cold today and his PhD in Renaissance Intellectual History from Harvard University, which I know it's cold at today, completing additional coursework in Jewish studies at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. The funny story is, what I just told you is his background, and if you know Ahuva Ho, she was reading a paper on some, I don't know, some history of Jews of Italy, or maybe Sephardi Jews, and said, oh, Daniel Stein Koken, this can't be the same expert in Israeli music that CSP brings. Really, it's the other way around. This is a unique program that Professor Stein Koken has done for us based on a special program he did uh, on the 70th anniversary 
um, of the state of Israel, in which he chose one song for each decade and um, talked about why he chose that song. That was a terrific program. That's where we first met him. And Phyllis said, I want you to come back and do the first program in memory of Barney. If you've missed that program, though, I sent out a link, and I'll resend it, in which the whole program is up there with resources and clips from the, from the, the uh, music that you discussed. Yep. So with that, please join me in welcoming Professor Daniel Steinkoken to Rainy Orange County from Rainy LA. And good that it's rainy, think, uh, finally. Well, thank you so, so much for the very warm, kind uh, introduction, and especially for the invitation. It's wonderful to be back here. It really is an extremely impressive enterprise that you have here, the, the CSP, and it's a real honor for me to be a participant now for the second time. So thank you, Ari, for your so meticulously attending to all the logistics of this event, and a special thank you to Phyllis for the invitation to present uh, at the inaugural uh, Barney birthday, birthday Bash. It's really, I'm humbled and honored that you, that you selected me for this role, and I hope I acquit myself well today. I will certainly do my best. Uh, though I never had the pleasure of meeting Barney, uh, you already sort of said this, but I do feel a certain kinship to him as, and here I have to be honest, as a once and future horn player. For the time being, I sort of focus on shofar uh, seasonally. I play a mean shofar. <laughs> Hope one day when things settle down, kids and so forth, they get back to horn. Um, uh, and I also, I'd like to think to hope that my topic today, foreign songs found in translation, the translation of foreign songs into Hebrew and their role in Israeli culture, I'd like to think, I, I'd hope that this is a kind of program that would have interest, uh, interested Barney, who, uh, as I imagine many of you know, one of his most famous uh, compositions it's called Five Folk Songs for Soprano and Band, and the remarkable thing about this piece is that each folk song is in a different language. So I feel like, I hope that there's a certain sort of kinship uh, between us uh, in that respect as well. All right, so to set the scene, I'd like to start with a song that I think we all know and love, um, but perhaps not quite in this form. Let's go to the next slide and press play. And I, it's pretty silent. Huh. <laughs> yeah. Sounds of silence, Tzlilei HaSheket, actually sounds beautiful in Hebrew too, I would say. Uh, and this was the work of the Parbarim, the suburbs, uh, a major duo in Israeli musical history. They existed spanning the 60s, 70s, and, and beyond, famous for their renditions of Israeli folk songs and Sephardic Ladino melodies. But they also, in 1972, put out a complete album of Simon and Garfunkel songs. Let's go to the next slide. Here you see they really, they really got into this full throttle. They even dressed up, play, you know, tried to play the role. They were the right sizes. <laughs> They're just about the same ages as, Simon, as, uh, as uh, Art and, and Paul. So they really sort of fit the bill uh, quite well. Um, and these songs were actually translated by, by Ehud Manor from English into Hebrew. And Ehud Manor, for those who know, one of the great songwriters of Israeli musical history. So this is quite a remarkable phenomenon, I think. 
but it's, we're hardly dealing with an isolated phenomenon because if you consider the Israeli musicians involved in the translation of foreign songs into Hebrew, it really reads like a who's who's list of distinguished Israeli musical personalities. Naomi Shemer, Yossi Banai, Mati Kaspi, Yehudit Rabitz, Arik Einstein, Yaffa Yarkoni, Chaim Hefer, and the, the list goes on and on and on. It's really a tremendous corpus of material. The foreign songs translate into Hebrew, encompasses Amer American songs, British songs, Russian songs, Portuguese, French, uh, Greek. Really, I've, I've only, I have not even close to really wrapping my hands around the full extent of the phenomenon. It's noteworthy that the very country that refused to allow the Beatles to come and perform there invested tremendous efforts in translating Beatles songs into Hebrew. Uh, Naomi Shemer, early on, uh, produced a rendition into Hebrew of a song which she called, Oh Mana Ehu Haboker, uh, Oh What a Beautiful Morning, for those who know Oklahoma. Yossi Banai, uh, the great Israeli actor, singer, dramatist, uh, part of the incredible Banai family, full of musicians and, and entertainers, uh, he faced a difficult choice. He wanted to bring the French ch chanson uh, to Hebrew, to Israel. So who do you choose? Do you try to make yourself into Georges Bassons, or do you try to make yourself into Jacques Brel? And Yossi Benai decided not to choose and put out albums of both of these singers translated into Hebrew. I have a short clip of... Uh, uh, of um, a section of, uh, hold on, just of, uh, of, this is the Georges Brasson in the original French, and it's like most of Brasson's songs, it's quite dirty, but Ari said it, was, it would be okay. I for checked. This group, it's fine. Yeah, Nothing, all right, so let it roll, watch out for the gorilla. C'est à travers de larges grilles que les femelles du canton contemplaient un puissant gorille sans souci du grand miraton. Avec un pudeur, c'est comme maître, l'on est même un endroit précis que rigoureusement ma maître m'a défendu de nommer ici. Car au gorille, All right, and now let's see what Yossi Banai did with that very same section of song. All right, so you get the idea. Again, quite good, actually, I think. Let's move on. Another uh, great example is uh, the Brazilian singer Jorge Ben, whose uh, piece, uh, País Tropical, we'll hear a little bit of it right now, 1969, made him an international star. And you, it's down at the bottom there, so it's hard to find, yeah. Moro num país tropical, abençoado por Deus, e bonito por natureza. Que beleza! Em fevereiro. Okay, and now the Israeli version from a few years later featuring Mati Kaspi, and I'm pretty sure that uh, this woman here turned to the side there, Mrs. Woody Roberts, who also 
performed this song in her own right, Yeshli Eretz Tropit Yafa, I Have a Beautiful Tropical Country, huge hit in Israel in the late 70s. Let it run. Sorry, the sounds are always a little different. Than... to listen to this, these pieces, I think at least, and one's tempted to go on and on with them, but of course you want some analysis. Uh, and so the real question is, well, what do we do with all this material? What is the underlying significance of it? Why should we care about it? There are lots of great Hebrew songs that were originally composed in Hebrew. Why should we even worry about these? And so let's go to the next slide. Wait, hold on. Go back actually one. Sorry, I don't know something... I wanted to have my title up there again, sorry. Found in translation, I'll, I can give it to you just as well. Foreign Songs and the Creation of Israeli Musical Culture. F found in translation. I've been, of course, playing on this idea of lost in translation, that you know, when you pass from one language to another, you're sort of unmoored and confused, don't feel at home, and so forth. But in my title, Found in Translation, question mark, I'm asking, and indeed I want to do more than ask, I want to suggest that a lot of these songs actually really found a real home in Hebrew, in modern Israel. Uh, and in some cases found maybe even a better home, actually, in, in Israel than they, had had, than they had found elsewhere. Why is that the case? So here I have to talk a little bit about what translation is, in general, as an enterprise. Why do we translate when we translate? You translate because you need stuff, either because your own culture hasn't produced whatever it is, or because there's something that's so great out there that you want to have it and uh, domesticate it, bring it uh, into your own home culture, so to speak. So on the one hand, uh, translation, the activity of translation testifies to your limitations as a culture, but it also testifies to your openness, to your willingness actually to bring in things from outside. And so what I want to say about Hebrew in the context of modern Israel is that it's Let's face it, parochial language, language of a very small country, uh, it was needy. Uh, and because it was receptive to bringing in so many of these outside influences, that actually enriched Hebrew tremendously, enriched Hebrew as a musical language, and transformed Hebrew into a language that could actually function on a viable level in a wide range of musical genres. Hebrew today handles folk, rock, samba, chanson, rap, well, you, you name it, it works, actually, in Hebrew. And it's because of, uh, I think it's because of this openness to these foreign elements, this willingness to domesticate these foreign songs uh, into the modern Israeli context. So precisely the dependence on translation is what actually helped Hebrew really triumph and develop as a, as a modern language. Now, one could also say that translation can function, in certain cases, as a real bridge, uh, or at least beginning to address long-standing cultural tensions or gaps or vexed relationships. And I think a wonderful example of this is uh, the next song that we'll turn to. And now it's a nice short song, so we can actually listen to the whole thing. The story starts with a poem by the great German, 19th century German poet Heinrich Heine called Gruß, or Greeting. 
A sweet sound of bells peals gently through my soul. Ring out, little song of spring. Ring out far and wide. Ring out till you reach the house where violets are blooming. And if you should see a rose, send to her my greeting. All right? That was set to music, that song was set to music by Felix Mendelssohn. And then in 1941, the great Israeli poet, German-born and educated herself, Leah Goldberg, rendered it into Hebrew. Now, it's quite amazing to think of Leah Goldberg translating a canonical work of German literature into Hebrew in 1941, of all years. And for the most part, I mean, she's fairly close to the original. Um, we can actually go to the next slide where I'm not going to spend time here, but if you're interested, we can talk later. I tried to color code places where there are interesting differences. So for example, where the German says Klinge, ring out, uh, Leah Goldberg has Ufa, fly. But one difference that I really want to linger on here is where the German has Liedliches Geläute. Let's go back to the English. Let's see how, um, one more. Yeah, um, a sweet sound is how it's rendered there. We can go back to that. Powerful page. Manginat Hatohar, a melody of purity, she calls it. It really goes far beyond what the German uh, had. And here I think she's maybe perhaps making a little bit of an ideological point, as if to say that here these, this, this poem, this song, that was the work of Heinrich Heine and Felix Mendelssohn, who after all were basically um, great uh, practitioners of German culture who were deeply rooted in Judaism. Heinrich Heine famously converted to Christianity because he said, that's the passport into European high society, but remained very uh, close to his Jewish heritage. And Felix Mendelssohn, of course, was you know, a descendant of Moses Mendelssohn, the great German Jewish philosopher. And so in a sense, by translating their work into Hebrew, she's in a sense purifying it, bringing it back to sort of the home Jewish language, in a way addressing this tension and this gap between the Jewish and the German. At the same time, though, this song because of its Hebrew and German sides, can be seen as a kind of anthem to the German-Jewish schism or tradition or history. Uh, and I don't know if any of you are familiar with the 2004 Israeli film Walk on Water, which is a great exploration, very powerful exploration of German, Israeli, and Jewish-Christian relations. I highly recommend the film. That film, at the very end, they play this song in the final credits, as if to say that this song is kind of offers a kind of resolution of the German-Jewish-Israeli-German dilemma. And just, I want to actually play a recording. We'll hear Esther Ofarim, very famous Israeli singer, who also had a distinguished uh, performance career in Germany. And here she, here she is, she's singing in Hamburg in 1998. And listen to what she does with this song. And enjoy it, it's beautiful. Leise zieht durch mein Gemüt, So rene 
So as you probably already begin to see, what really interests me is less when a song is simply rendered into Hebrew, though that, of course, is uh, of, of interest, but I'm especially fascinated by the kinds of changes that are made in order to make the song be found uh, in translation, in Hebrew translation. And there are lots and lots of examples, and that's really what I'm going to be focusing on in this lecture. So a nice, a fun little example is... Um, a rendering of the Beatles' Yellow Submarine into Hebrew as Solelet uh, Sabarit, Sabra Submarine, which in a way, which basically domesticates this Beatles song for, a, uh, for an Israeli uh, children's audience. Uh, but what I want to, a really lovely example here we can go, is a Russian poem by A.K. Tolstoy, not Leo Tolstoy, not the War and Peace Tolstoy, another Tolstoy, all renowned as a poet, called My Native Land. And I'm not going to read the whole text, but basically it's an evocation of the Russian, of Mother Russia and of the, the vistas of Mother Russia. You see at the end, windswept fields, really, to the steppe and meadows, okay? So, and it was a very popular song in 19th century Russia. And so then, when a Russian-born Jew named Yitzhak uh, 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 Livni, sorry, when he makes Aliyah to Palestine in 1911, what does he do in order to make himself feel at home in his new, in his adopted homeland? He translates this song into Hebrew. Uh, we can go to the next uh, slide. And he makes uh, the necessary adjustments. Let's go one more. So, you know, in, in, in Russia you have beating hoofs of horses. You have, uh, you have e scream of eagles in the sky. Well, in Israel you don't necessarily have that, but you have the roar of waves in the sea. In Russia you have the step. You don't have the steppe in Israel, but you have desert, mountains, and wind. And this song proved so successful in the teens and 20s in Palestine that uh, it actually, even in Russia, came to be known in some quarters as a traditional, typical song of the Shomrim in Eretz Israel, you know, of the guards in, in, in Eretz Israel, and even seems to have been adopted by Palestinian Arab shepherds. And in one Russian book of musical ethnography, the song is, in an Arabic version, is described as a traditional song of uh, Palestinian Arab shepherds. So it's amazing how in the space of a few years, a song can really cross linguistic and cultural boundaries and be so fully domesticated in them that it seems as if that song had always been there, had always belonged to that culture. Okay, let's go one more slide forward. We're going to listen, da, 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 there, and we're going to listen to a beautiful rendering of this song from 1968 by Yehoram Gaon, a famous Israeli singer. I already spoke with one of you about him, Jerusalem, to Yerushalmi. And in a way, he, as you'll see, is sort of the hero of today's, uh, of today's presentation. Let's uh, listen to Mechorati, my homeland, my native land. Mechorati, nof molade ti, 
It's amazing. It works as a song of the Israeli homeland, but it's a Russian song. It was the song about the Russian homeland, um, found in translation. Uh, and, but what even in particular fascinates me, and now I'm really getting to the heart of the point that I want to make today, is are cases where the translation is not in such a direct sense as we encounter here. Yes, we had some terms that were adjusted, but more or less we're dealing with the same, fundamentally the same song. But there are cases where a song in, 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 in one culture, in one language, gives rise to, inspires, we could say, a song in another language. Hebrew is our language of interest today, of course. That clearly still depends on that original song, but is nonetheless fundamentally a new song in its own right. And for this phenomenon, I'm going to coin a term, and I'm going to call it transpiration. Uh, translation and inspiration. Now, this is actually a biological term, a term in biology, and refers to the evaporation of water from plant leaves. So I apologize to any biologists who are here for stealing your term. It's sort of another example of found in translation, let's say. So what I'm really going to be talking about is Transpiration, okay? And in the Anglo-American context, we have a wonderful example of this. You can go to the next song. Uh, uh, yeah. So, God Save the King or God Save the Queen and My Country, Tis of Thee. My Country, Tis of Thee, it's fundamentally a different song, but it actually, the meaning of the song is actually enhanced by knowing that it comes from God Save uh, the Queen, or God Save the King. Let's go to the next slide here. And here, just highlighting, you know, God Save the Queen, of thee I sing. Instead of this focus on the monarch, a focus on me, on, on the citizens of the country. Me, uh, I sing, land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride. It's not about the queen, 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 queen. It's about us, the citizens of the country. And then especially at the close, God Save the Queen, let freedom ring. Let freedom ring rings even stronger when you know that the original line was God save the king. Instead of a king, we have freedom, okay, from an American perspective. So this, I think, is a, is a, is a lovely example of the kind of phenomenon I'm talking about, where one song in a particular context, in a way, gives birth, inspires a new song in a different context that has a very different cultural meaning that does a very different kind of thing in that new context and yet is very much at home. Again, found in translation. Here, not translated linguistically, but culturally in terms of values, for sure. Okay, so, uh, so now I want to actually profile three songs which existed in, actually in English and prompted, inspired uh, via transpiration, again, 
uh, new distinct Israeli songs. All right, and let's start with our first one. How are we doing, by the way? Everyone can hear me? Are you able to follow me along all right? Okay. So, I, I don't know, maybe some of you remember, familiar with this song, Tennessee Ernie Ford, 16 Tons. I grew up listening to this song by the Weavers, but this is really the original and most famous rendition. And this song sold over 20 million copies. I mean, really astoundingly successful song. In a way, you could say the classic song uh, detailing the travails of the working man, so beholden to his work, so indebted to his boss that he can't even die. Let's hear it. People say a man is made out of mud. A poor man's made out of muscle and blood. Muscle and blood and skin and bones. A mind that's weak and a back that's strong. You load the 16 What do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. I was born one morning and the sun didn't shine. I picked up my shovel and I walked to the mine. I loaded 16 tons of number nine coal. And the straw boss said, well, bless my soul, you load 16 tons. What do you get? Another day older and deeper in depth. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. So, great song, again, detailing the travails of the working man. And this song inspired an Israeli song from 1958, 12 tons, which <laughs> celebrates, <coughs> celebrates working on the kibbutz. All right? Uh, and this, was, this song was the product of the songwriting duo Yechiel Mohar and Sasha Argov, who collaborated on a lot of songs together. Are we all right? Uh, and was performed by the Lakhat Hanachal Entertainment Group, the most prestigious of the famous Lakhot Tzvayot, the army entertainment uh, troops. Uh, and this was the heyday, the 50s, 60s, the heyday of such uh, military troops in Israel. And we're about to hear a great recording of uh, 12 tons. And one of the singers in the group is Yehoram Gaon, who we just met a few minutes ago. All right, 12 tons. And here you have, I don't have the entire text in... Uh, in, in English translation, but you get the idea from what I do have here. I will say, if you want to work on your vegetable vocabulary in Hebrew, <laughs> this is your song. All right. No, actually, not that one. Up there, sorry. Anachnu horadnu beyom rishon, shtem zeton shelagban miyot, 
You might ask, well, why 12 tons then, if you started with 16? And I think really the reason is that 
12 is a much more resonant number in Jewish tradition. 16 really says nothing to us but 12, you know, 12 tribes of Israel. And in fact, there's reference, they call themselves uh, at one point the 12th tribe uh, in the song. So it's much more evocative to talk about uh, to talk about 12. 12 really, in Jewish tradition, it evokes a sense of wholeness, completion. So to get to 12 tons of tomatoes, even if it's the first time in 2,000 years, that's, you know, especially because it's the first time in 2,000 years, is a real achievement. And that's, of course, a great joke because 2,000 years ago, there were no tomatoes to, to collect uh, at all. So, uh, all right. And so if we think about the relationship between these two songs, I mean, there's some real clear contrast here. Obviously, the melodies are different, but I, the point that I want to make is that it really, we can really, so in a way, it emphasizes the point, the underlying ideology of the 12-ton song to know that it was taken and inspired by the 16-ton song. So just looking at the respective choruses of the two songs, you load 16 tons, what do you get? You get nothing. Corresponding, it's the dream. So instead of how you're always losing, what you're dreaming about in working. St. Peter, don't you call me? You know, an evocation of religion, I can't go to heaven or anywhere because I'm in debt. Um, and this 12-ton goal, it's the greatest prophecy, siyah chazon, they're using sort of biblical language here of you know, religious expectation. Uh, I owe my soul to the company store versus the meshek, the kibbutz. And so this nice contrast between, first of all, of you know, me as an individual worker suffering ever more, getting nowhere, my fortunes are constantly in decline, I have no stake in what I'm doing, versus the Israeli ideology of the kibbutz, that we're working together, we own collectively what it is that we're doing. Uh, and just to go to the next verse, really the, sort of the great contrast here is the constant I, I, I of 16 tons versus the we, we, we of, um, of uh, 12 tons. So, so against the individualistic, pessimistic, perspective of the one song, you have the collective, the optimistic, the joyful perspective of the other song. So a great evocation of the socialist collective spirit of 1950s Israel, inspired by an American uh, song, bewailing the plight of the worker. All right? Well, turn now to perhaps the most famous example of, uh, of what I am calling transpiration, and that is the Naomi Shemer song, Lu Yehi, the famous song of the Yom Kippur War, October 1973, which I imagine, well, I think it was on my abstract, but I imagine many of you knew even in advance where it comes from, um, from the Beatles, Let It Be. So we'll just hear a, a, just a tiny bit of Let It Be just to get us in the spirit. Let It Be 1970, and then... Lu Yehi, 1973. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. And in my hour of darkness, she is standing right in front of me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. Let it be, let it be, let it be, let it be. Whisper words of wisdom, let it be. When all the broken hearted people living in the world 
let it be. But though they may be parted, there is still a chance that they will see. There will be an answer, let it be. Oh, let it be. One of the fun things about doing this project is that I'm actually learning a lot of things about the original songs that I didn't know. So I always thought Mother Mary, Mother Mary. But in fact, Paul McCartney had a mother named Mary. And, and the song was inspired by a dream in which his mother, who had actually died when he was a very young boy, came to visit him and comforted him uh, in a moment of crisis. Okay, so... Uh, just to quickly note here, in a way, uh, evoking things that we said in the earlier case, this is a song very much, for the most part, about an individual confronting a, a situation of difficulty, when I find myself in times of trouble. There is an evocation of a collective in the second verse, when the brokenhearted people, uh, but it's very abstract. It's not clear what they're brokenhearted about. It's not clear exactly which people we're talking about. We're talking about brokenhearted people in general. Uh, and then in the concluding verse, and when the night is cloudy, there is still a light that shines on me. Uh, I wake up to the sound of music. Mother Mary comes to me. Uh, it's all about me, for the most part. Uh, when we go, if we move to Naomi Shemer, Lu Yehi, and look at the text there, we see a rather different uh, situation. Uh, and really, the chorus really brings this home. Kol Shenevakesh Lu Yehi. All that we ask for, all that we request, all that we petition for, may it be. And just now a note on the title of this song, Lu Yehi. It's not an exact linguistic translation of let it be. Let it be in Hebrew would have been something more like shi'iyeh. Um, Lu Yehi is, is more, if only it would be. It's not really let it be, if only it could be, if only this would be the case. Uh, so it's a bit more, it's, it's searching much more strongly actually than, than let it be is. But of course, in terms of the actual sound, the tzlil of the, of, the, of the title and of the chorus, it actually works much better. Let it be. Three syllables, lu yahi, three syllables. And the result is an unmistakable uh, indication that this song is taken from the other song, as is, of course, the very similar melodies. Though the melodies are not exact. And that's actually an interesting story, because while she was composing the song, Naomi Shemer, her husband at the time, Mordechai Shevitz, uh, it seems actually that she was started out by more or less working with the Beatles melody as uh, uh, the, 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 the melody from uh, Let It Be. And her husband said, uh, I will not let you waste this song on the tune of strangers. This is about a Jewish war and you must write a Jewish melody. So, and she apparently agreed and changed the tune uh, to distinguish it a bit more from Let It Be. Nonetheless, it's still very, very similar, but one of the key distinguishing factors is that it's much more minor, actually, as opposed to Let It Be, which is more major. So a classic Jewish sort of uh, signage, so to speak, uh, in a song. Uh, and just looking at the words also here, again, this emphasis more on a collective situation. Uh, I'll note also, you know, you see this in up on the top left, and in the evening windows, the light of the holiday candles flickers, identifies a collective society, identifies, marks this as a, as a particularly Jewish song. If the messenger is at the door, put a kind word in his mouth, 
This, again, this is a song of the Yom Kippur War. This messenger is someone from the army, presumably coming to inform a family that their son has fallen in battle. So a, a petition there that clearly has, rings collectively. Uh, and then even up on the top right there, where the narrator of the song speaks in the eye voice, what is the sound that I hear? The cry of the shofar and the sound of drums. All that we ask for, may it be. If only there can be heard within all this one prayer from my lips also, all that we seek, may it be. So even here, where the narrator dares to speak in the first person, it's clear that the, that, that petition, that that prayer, really is actually of a collective nature and is relevant for the situation of the society as a whole. So if I were to try to sum up the differences between this, these, these pieces, uh, let it be, ultimately, it's a very abstract song. It's, not, it's, it's very fluid. It doesn't, it's, not, it's very unmoored, one could say. And that's, in a sense, uh, why it has been so uh, successful worldwide. It really works for anybody in any situation. Whatever difficulty you're facing, let it be, can speak to you. Whereas Lu Yehi is really a song that speaks to a particular society facing a particular kind of challenge. And ultimately, I would say, I think it's actually a better, deeper song actually, and this is part of my argument that sometimes a song that, that in this process that I'm calling transpiration, the song that results can actually sometimes be even a better song than the song that it depends on. John Lennon, by the way, hated Let It Be. He said, oh, that has nothing to do with the Beatles. That's Paul just on his own little thing. All right, so um, let's listen to Louis He for at least a few minutes. <laughs> Yeah, he 
קיץ סוף הדרך, תן להם לשוב הלום, כל שנבקש לו יהי. That was Chava Alberstein, great Israeli singer, Chava Alberstein, singing Naomi Shemer's uh, Lu Yehi. And it's, of course, no secret that there is this relationship between Lu Yehi and Let It Be. But I'm really curious if anyone here in the next case was aware of, the, of a prior existing connection between the songs or knew both of them and, and thought of them as being connected. So first, let's start with our American song, and here I actually want to try, I hope this will work, I want us to depart from the PowerPoint for a second and go to the, go to the internet. Good morning, America. 
I learned I had never known that the show Good Morning America was uh, the title of the show was actually inspired by this song. <laughs> All right, and also that Arlo Guthrie did not want to be uh, associated as a singer of railroad songs, um, but all well. Uh, best intentions can go uh, awry. All right, let's go to the next song. בפריז וגם ברומא ראיתי את שבעת פלאי תבל בקוטר הצפוני וגם ברומא אך אין מקום כמו ארץ ישראל וכמו גלויות של נוף יפות תמונות בזיכרוני עפות כמו בעד עדשה של מצלמה בתרמילי אותן אשא לכל מקום בכל מסע כדי פסיפס מתוך תמונה שלמה. שלום לך ארץ נהדרת, עבדך הדל נושא לך שיר מזמור, גם אם לעיתים נודד אני על דרך, מה טוב לנדוד אך טוב יותר לחזור. חיי המגדלים בירושלים, בסמטאות השוק הצבעוני, גגות הרעבים של גבעתיים, 
אני בתינון מבעד חלוני, את האביב בתל אביב, את סבתי ואת סבי, את החלה ואת נרות שבת, את ים המלח מול אדום, ואשת לוט צופה לסתום, ואת הקיץ אורך האלה. שלום לך ארץ נהדרת, עבדך דל נושא לך שיר מזמור. So, uh, amazing contrast between these two songs, though they're nonetheless you know, clearly very closely connected with each other. And again, this song is clearly inspired by the previous example. Good morning, America. How are you? Shalom lach, Eretz, Nehederet. Hello to you, wonderful country. It's unmistakable. And obviously, you know, the melody, it plays out differently in this song. It's much quicker pace, much, cheer much cheerier, as is the song. Good morning, uh, city of New Orleans. It's really a... It's sort of a, you know, a pain to the departing, fading world of the American uh, railroad. You know, we're right at that point where passenger rail service is basically collapsing in the early 70s. Amtrak hasn't yet you know, taken over the little bit that was left. And so there's this sense of mournful, you know, wistful, rusty decline. All the, maybe we can go back to the lyrics for a second. But, um, but you know, everything he's going by, you know, it's... Uh, Passing trains that have no names, freight, uh, you know, freight yards, graveyards of the rusted automobiles. It's all sort of dreary, falling apart, in decline, heading you know, to its end. There is a sort of, you know, um, there is a little you know, sense of you know, coming back, coming home to New Orleans from Chicago. But it's, you know, it's clear that things are not headed in a really great uh, direction. And there's also a really strong linear character. Like it's just sort of you feel it's moving straight. We're moving on the railroad. Uh, heading, you know, to our destination. Um, and of course, you know, what was, what's more American, what was more American than the railroad? I mean, the story of America is the story of the railroad, or at least it was, but until the railroad really didn't matter um, anymore. Um, and so hence the, 
you know, in the chorus, the sense of, that the narrator has been sort of forgotten. How are you, America? Don't you know that I'm your native son? I'm, you know, how have you you've forgotten me? Uh, and if we go now to back to your, your Ram Gaon, every, we still have the same dynamic, but it's reversed. Hello, you wonderful country. Your poor servant sings you a song. Even if I sometimes wander on my way, it's good to wander, but better to return. So this song is about really the temptations of the, of the, of the wider world uh, for the good, faithful Zionist or Israeli, let's say. I mean, look how it starts. I've been in Paris and also in Rome. Okay, very possible. I've seen the seven wonders of the world. Less likely. Uh, the North Pole and also the South Pole, definitely not. But there's no place like the land of Israel, you know. All right, if you say so, uh, fair enough. Uh, but there's, what I want, the point I want to make, there's a sort of circular quality to this, like the whole globe is embraced. And when we come to the second part of the song, where he's really, he's really taking us on a tour all around, all around Israel. One person that I talked with this about actually suggest, wondered if uh, this land is your land might not have a sort of echo there, another sort of Guth Guthrie echo uh, finding its way into this song. And I found, it's hard to prove a suggestion like that, but I found there's a certain plausibility uh, uh, to, uh, there. Uh, so yeah, it's, there's this sort of this danger that the singer might be tempted to forget about Israel, and hence this very strident assertion that there is no place, no place like this. And um, you'll notice if we go down to the next page. Uh, no, sorry, actually, uh, go back, 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 one more. Sorry, the very first. Uh, sorry, back to the other side. One more down. Yeah, the first place that he talks about in Israel is, of course, Yerushalayim, Jerusalem. Now, Yeroam Gaon, again, the hero, in a way, of today's presentation. He was a good Yerushalmi, but it's also Jerusalem is the center of the world. It's the center of Israel. Again, this sort of circular or global quality to this song with, again, Jeru Israel and especially Jerusalem uh, right up uh, in, its, uh, in its center. All right, so I think a really fun, I hope, uh, uh, contrast between these two songs, again, I think a nice example of what I'm calling transpiration. All right, uh, in closing, I'd like to turn to something fitting for the season. Uh, as you all presumably know, this Sunday night uh, marks the start of Hanukkah, and to some degree here, but especially in Israel, the following song will be sung. It's right down there. Yeah. by Levin Kipnis, who's really the great composer of Israeli kids' songs. You know, what do you do when you want to start a new country? Well, you need children's songs, and someone's got to write them, and this guy did. He was, uh, 
He had been born in the Russian Empire, today's Ukraine, uh, came to Palestine on Aliyah, and basically set out creating a canon of Israeli children's songs. Okay, now it happens this year that this coming Sunday marks not just the beginning of Hanukkah, but in the Christian tradition, Christian tradition marks the beginning of Advent, which is rather less known here in the United States, but in Germany it is really a very big deal nationally. Our holiday season starts with Thanksgiving, so Advent is sort of a, bit, a little bit, uh, falls a little bit by the wayside. In Germany, though, it's a very big deal. Advent is basically the period, uh, the fourth Sunday before Christmas, basically marks the beginning of this very special time. Advent means sort of coming towards, you're approaching Christmas. And in Germany, let's go to the next uh, uh, slide, one of the famous, one of the central Advent songs is Tochter Zion. Let's listen to it. It's actually more complicated than that because Handel actually plagiarized himself. And he stole this song from an earlier work that he had written about Joshua, about the biblical Joshua, and then recycled it in the guise of 
the Hasmonean, Maccabean Judah, uh, which then gave rise to the Christian adaptation of it in the 19th century and the Zionist-Israeli adaptation of it in the 20th century. Now, the question that I really would love to be able to answer, and I just can't answer it yet, is where exactly Kipnis was inspired. Uh, I mean, it makes sense to say that he was taking it from Judas Maccabeus, because it is a Maccabee song that he composes. And Handel is you know, not just your, you know, some guy on the street, but a well-known composer. But he composed the song in 1936. And the 30s in Palestine were a time when the Yekim were coming en masse, German Jews who assuredly would have known the song Tochter Zion much more than they would have known Judas Maccabeus. So it is actually possible that he was initially inspired by the German Christian adaptation of this to, as it were, bring the song back to its original roots, and in a sense to really make it at home by composing a song about, with this melody about Judah the Maccabee in Hebrew, uh, a song in which the collective together exalts that Maccabim Anachnu, we are Maccabees. So it remains a little bit of a puzzle, something to ponder uh, for the future, but I couldn't resist, given that Hanukkah is coming up, and given that this year, it's particularly special that Hanukkah and Advent are beginning basically on the same day. It was Beshert that I conclude with, uh, with this song. And with that concludes my presentation. Thank you very much. And happy birthday, Bern Barney. Yes. If I play Luyahi today for an Israeli audience, it ranges from survivors of the war to children and grandchildren. What's the emotional content that brings up the Israeli population? That's a great question. And I confess, I don't quite feel qualified to answer that because, uh, but I think I'll take a stab at it. And if the people who want to quibble with what I say feel free, I mean, I think that it is still widely known as a song that grows out of the uh, Yom Kippur War experience. But of course, the, the elements in the, uh, the song and this notion of the messenger coming to the door and let him bear positive news and not hor horrible news, I mean, that rings true, you know, not just for the Yom Kippur War, unfortunately, but for so many other conflicts that have transpired since. But the point is that this is a song that speaks to a collective, that speaks to a society that has certain shared values that undergoes certain experiences in common, whereas Let It Be is just sort of floating around in the world. And again, it appeals, it can appeal to anybody anywhere for that reason. But I, I'm partial to Lu Yahi ultimately because it has a sort of a, it, you know, it has, it's, it, it's in the, planted in the soil, so to speak. Okay, uh, Howard. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I couldn't help being struck by the, by the similarity between, between the Judas Maccabeus theme and Frosty the Snowman. Hmm. Frosty the Snowman. Frosty the Snowman. How does it go after that? Uh, okay. We are still. The question I have you talk about this, this um, transpiration from foreign cultures into, into Hebrew. Mm -hmm. How about in the other direction? Mm -hmm. Will you repeat the question? 
So, I, well, I thought you were going to ask the way you started, is there a Hebrew translation of Frosty the Snowman? Um, and I don't know. But no, the real question was, okay, you talked about all these cases of foreign songs translated into Hebrew. What about Hebrew songs translated into other languages? And yes, I have seen some cases of, uh, I'm trying to think, just the other day I encountered a song related to the other program that I did that has been translated into Italian and is singable. Uh, I mean, let's go back to the Bible, Tehillim, the Psalms, which have been translated beautifully into a whole wide range of languages. But in terms of the contemporary Israeli experience, uh, I have to think for a second. I'm sure there are some examples. Uh, it's a great question. Okay, Phyllis? Yes. Uh, I had no idea how relevant Hebrew was to my husband's music. Ah, Thank you so much. I said at the very outset that I sort of would like to think that, that uh, especially in light of the five folk songs for band and soprano, that Barney would have liked the presentation. So it's great to hear that, that, that you find it relevant for his work. Thank you. OK, we got Rochelle, and we got Alita. And then we're going to close it, up shop. translations come from Western cultures. And I'm wondering if there are any translations into Hebrew of the uh, Amharic or the Tunisian, mm -hmm. uh, or are they already in Hebrew and just relegated socially, not really Can't appropriated? The question. Yes. So the question, yeah, so the question was a great question and a very fair challenge, uh, I'll add, is, was you focus basically on songs from the Western tradition here, American, English, that were yeah, Christian. Uh, what about, say, Middle East or Africa, Amharic songs you know, from the via the Ethiopian community, or Middle Eastern songs, you mentioned Tunisia. And yes, I mean, I, I don't know a specific Amharic example, but I, I would bet that, that it exists. Uh, I don't know how well known it is in Israel, but I'm sure that uh, Israelis of Ethiopian uh, ancestry have been, have been doing that sort of thing. And from, from Arabic into Hebrew, sure, absolutely. And I mean, a whole other huge subset of this that I didn't even touch on at all is Balkan music, Greek music in, in, in modern uh, uh, Israeli music that has had an absolute enormous influence. As I said at the beginning, I mean, this is such a vast phenomenon. This is really sort of an initial jump into a wide ocean. And you've got to start somewhere. And it's sort of easier to start in your home territory a little bit. I also thought for the purpose of an enjoyable presentation that it would sort of be fun to sort of focus on songs that, that the audience knows and then presumably, hopefully, would be pleased to sort of 
are amused to discover the Israeli counterpart or the, you know, what it inspired in Israel. But you're absolutely right. There's so much more to be thinking about in this vein. Okay, Alita, last question. So many of the pieces that you played, it, the Israeli version shows an, what seems to me almost an adoration and a veneration for the land and for the country and for the idea of Israel contrasted to what seemed often to be a criticism of the United States and the, and the time. What I'm wondering, if that's a reflection of the, at the time these songs were created, the newness of the country, and if some of the songs that may be uh, created today based on other versions may be more critical of the country as Israel gets older and reflects more on itself and, and learns to maybe question aspects of itself. Yes, another great challenge, another great question, and I think the answer would be yes. I mean, yeah, the fact that most of these songs were from the early decades of Israel is reflected in their rootedness in the central myths of the Zionist enterprise, and we could definitely talk about examples that head in, in a different direction. But again, you've got to start somewhere. So, I mean, these last two questions are basically very similar. They're, like, they're basically showing sort of where one would want to go next if one were to continue on this path, and... I hope at least someone will continue on this path. I don't know, I'm sure it'll be me, but there's, again, so much material to explore here. Right. Sorry, I think we're out of time. So I wanted to wrap it up by saying a few words. First of all, I wanted to thank Phyllis Gilmore and the Gilmore family for hosting us. I hope this is the beginning of an uh, annual November tradition. Now we have to start working on next year. I wanted to wish everybody, of course, a happy Hanukkah for Sunday. I hope you all got my email from this morning. I curated a list of uh, new, each year I've found different or new songs on YouTube to share. So I gave you eight. I started with something called Yid Life Crisis. And um, if you enjoy them, we heard about them from Justin Cammy. I don't know if you watch their stuff, but we'll be bringing them to Orange County in the next few months. I was just talking to them on the phone. So uh, enjoy the list of songs. I hope I will see you all here in December for our program. And I really hope I'll see Many of you at our opening and closing lectures in many of our programs with our one-month scholar in January, Professor Mark Dolinger. If you are a member, please remember to sign up if you want to attend any of the class series. If you're not a member yet, because your name does not appear in the materials, but would like to be a member, either because you want to support CSP and or because you want to attend our one-month programs, uh, email me or, or uh, see me right after the program. Uh, I wish you all again a Hanukkah Sameach and a uh, happy... Uh, holiday time. Enjoy. Happy day of rain. Bye-bye, everybody. Thank you.